You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for biohacking women over 50. I'm your host, Zora Benamou, a gerontologist, digital nomad, certified sports nutrition, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan, the cookbook, Eating for Longevity, and a new upcoming energy reboot program for women over 50. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and I would really appreciate it if you could please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find us too. This is a really small but very critical gesture that makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for older women, help us grow stronger, get our voice out there, and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. You can now watch all of our podcast interviews on the Hack My Age YouTube channel. Some of our guests bring slideshows, so it's really great to have. Every week there is a new video, so just search Hack My Age on YouTube.com or find the link on the Hack My Age website. I am really excited to finally have a cardiologist come on the show to talk about cholesterol. And I found Dr. Muhammad Allo while listening to the Simon Hill podcast, and I was really intrigued by what he said. And, you know, by the time we we get to midlife, many women suddenly may find themselves with higher cholesterol numbers. And our doctors are telling us one thing, yet social media or friends or a book we read may be telling us another, and it can all be very confusing. So that's why we have Dr. Allo here to clear the confusion. And he's not only a board certified cardiologist and an internist, but also a certified personal trainer and weight loss author and researcher. So we got a lot of great hats rolled up into one today. And and to be honest, his CV is really way longer than that. And we, we will be here for an hour if I read it all out. But he wrote a couple of books. No, he wrote tons of books and he speaks at medical conferences, but somehow in between all the medical training, he raised a family with four kids, started a media business, was a computer technician involved in politics and editor of a bunch of magazines. The one that I find most intriguing is his stint with a publication called Beef Ribs in 2003. And that, that reviewed restaurants serving beef instead of pork, instead of pork ribs. And Dr. Allo is definitely a high achiever who has done so much in so little time. But today we're going to focus on cholesterol. So before we get started, we have to read the little fancy disclaimer. The advice is that's given in this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. No patient-doctor relationship is established. So now without further ado, let's meet Dr. Muhammad Allo. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. So I got to Bring this out. What possessed you to become an editor of the Beef Ribs? <laughs> so I don't know. It was just a thing we did uh, in college. Me and a bunch of friends. We didn't. We don't eat pork, so we wanted to try ribs. So we just found random restaurants that served beef ribs, and we told them we're part of this group that reviews beef ribs, and so they'd give us like a really good deal. We were just poor college students at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I well we'll see what the cardiologist now says about that and be as we dig in deeper. So let's get into the heart disease. Heart disease definitely is the number one killer of men and women worldwide. And there's no doubt that we need to be concerned and and should take steps to minute to optimize our heart health. And and in the health and wellness space, there's a lot of confusion on cholesterol. 
statins are bad, cholesterol numbers aren't that important, calcium scores can assess heart, heart attack risk, and there's apolipoprotein A and B, little a, little b. It's crazy. And you can go down one big rabbit hole trying to figure it out. Before we had social media, we just worried about one number, and that was total cholesterol or maybe HDL and LDL, the good and the bad cholesterol. But that was about it. And now we're all confused. And so my question is, what does a woman going through menopause, women going 40s to 50s, more or less, really need to know about her cholesterol and heart health? Thanks for having me. Um, the most important thing is still, if you want to keep it simple, is still total cholesterol. Every study they've ever been done, they see that the higher the total cholesterol, uh, the more likely you are to have a heart attack or stroke or fatal MI, cardiovascular mortality, risk, all of that is comes with the higher cholesterol. Now, 70 to 80% of your total cholesterol is your LDL, your, your lipoprotein, your, your um, low-density lipoprotein, which are these guys. I usually like to use visuals. The blue protein on here, it's a structural protein, and I'll kind of show you what it looks like on, like this is your lipoprotein, there's the, the blue structure. It's a structural protein that um, holds it all together. Inside of it is the cholesterol, the yellow, and then the, the blue portions are triglycerides. The whole point of lipoproteins is to traffic lipids. Um, their job is to traffic lipids back and forth. You eat lipids or you eat too much you know, calories or whatnot, they get converted into fatty acids. And the job of lipoproteins is to traffic these fatty acids to muscles that need them, organs that need them, fat storage if you ate too much, you know, those kind of things. Part of the role is to traffic cholesterol out of cells and out of the body back to your liver to be eliminated. All of your lipoprotein is a, lip is a lipid trafficking system. Every cell in your body makes cholesterol on its own. You don't actually have to eat cholesterol uh, to have enough cholesterol. A lot of people think, well, don't we need cholesterol for hormones? Like, for example, in, in women, they say, well, don't we need estrogen or testosterone or cortisol or adrenal hormones or thyroid hormones or whatever it is, pituitary hormones, um, FH, LSH, all that stuff that you know women need or men need even, but you don't. Your body, your, your cells in your body and every single um, endocrine gland or endocrine tissue in your body can make its own cholesterol. So you actually don't need excess cholesterol. Now, dietary cholesterol, meaning cholesterol that you eat, does not really affect your overall cholesterol numbers because it's minuscule to the amount that your body and, and liver is producing. These lipoproteins travel around your body, um, traffic lipids, and mainly traffic cholesterol back to the liver to be eliminated. And, and your liver makes a ton of cholesterol itself. So the liver Get collects cholesterol back from your body, makes its own also, and then eliminates it into your, your bile duct, uh, and it goes back into your intestines. And the amount that you eat that ends up in your intestines is not that much compared to the amount that's being trafficked back through the liver um, and intestinal system. The point is, like basically, overall, if you want to be a little more specific, you can look at total cholesterol. But if you want to be a little bit more specific, LDL, or low-density lipoprotein, which is the one that has the blue uh, ApoB, structural protein on it. And we call it, it's an ApoB100. It's just a weighted, it's, it, it weighs 100. Um, basically, there are ones that are B48, um, and there's other ones, but without getting too sciency. But basically, you want your LDL cholesterol to be really low. And HDL, or healthy cholesterol, or what we used to call healthy cholesterol, or good cholesterol, it's not, we don't really have a target to treat anymore. All the studies that showed that we raised HDL had no outcomes benefits. In fact, a lot of them showed even harm. When your HDL is high, actually it's dysfunctional. I mean, just think about it. If the, let's say this is an HDL uh, molecule, the more cholesterol it has in it, 
the less it's able to get cholesterol out if that's its job. If the job of an HDL is to get cholesterol out of your arteries and your system, it's not doing a very good job if your HDL cholesterol is really, really high. So we believe now that a really high HDL is actually dysfunctional and not very helpful. And all the studies with medications and various interventions that have raised HDL have not provided outcomes that show that it protects you or helps you in any way or reduces risk, reduces MI, reduces strokes, heart attacks, cardiovascular mortality, you don't live longer. None of that stuff uh, really made uh, a difference. So that would be kind of the short, long answer to your question. So anyone interested to see the visuals, because that's, uh, Dr. Allah had this very interesting bowl that looked like, a, that showed the actual cholesterol. So go to the YouTube on Hack My Age, the YouTube channel there. The question I have then is, that's interesting because a lot of people would say, oh, well, I have high HDL, even if it's skyrocketed, I'm not going to worry about it. But a doctor may tell you, well, then it's not, it's not, I've had this same to me in the past too. It's it's the ratio. Don't worry. Okay. You're high LDL high, but you're also high HDL. So you're okay. You got the ratios are different. What would you say about that? So those ratios actually don't matter at all. Every study that's been done that does a ratio. So HDL, there's no target to treat. So if you put triglycerides over HDL or LDL over HDL or total cholesterol to HDL, any of those things and triglycerides, there's no target to treat. So if you put any of those things over top of HDL or below HDL or with triglycerides, without triglycerides, none of those ratios in any of the studies, if you correct for ApoB, if you correct for LDL, none of those studies have actually shown that any of these ratios are more predictive than actual just ApoB. ApoB is the atherogenic particles. It is these guys, all of the, the, the particles that can cause uh, atherogenesis or can plug up your arteries. None of the ratios have been shown to be more predictive. Now, of course, you could design a study, and there are some that show like the ApoB to ApoA is a little more predictive, A being HDL. So it'd be like LDL to HDL ratio or triglycerides to HDL. Like you could design a study to show all of these things, but if you don't correct for ApoB in the study design and you're not comparing it to ApoB, you'll notice that it's actually not very predictive. And there are studies with these plots that show that, you know, ApoB is here and HDL is here and all this stuff. I mean, that's all really too close to call. But if you look at just ApoB, which is just LDL, you have your answer. So if you want to focus on just one single thing in your cholesterol, profile, it would be your LDL. Look at what your LDL cholesterol is, the higher, the worse. And if you don't have an ApoB checked, one way to calculate it would be to take your total cholesterol, let's say it's 200, and then take your HDL, let's say it's 40, uh, and subtract the HDL from the total. So you're looking at 200 minus 40, about 160. That approximates your ApoB pretty closely. So that's one kind of like hack um, that you could do to kind of guess your ApoB. Um, you want to be under, you want your LDL and ApoB to be under the 20th percentile. You definitely don't want to be over the uh, 80th percentile. Over the 80th percentile puts you at, at higher risk of heart attacks, strokes, you know, cardiovascular mortality, all of that. Um, so the 80th percentile for most of these things is right around 100, 110, 115. Um, so you definitely don't want an ApoB over about 110, 115. But the the 20th percentile or lower, you're looking at a number about 70 on the LDL or 80 on the ApoB. And if you want to be even lower, the fifth percentile is under about 55 or 60 for both of those numbers. And then we now recommend people that have had heart attacks and strokes or multiple ischemic events, multiple heart attacks or strokes, stents, 
bypass surgery, stroke, whatever, that they need their LDL below 55 and even a stricter guideline. The, they're, they're, the Europeans say 55 in the US, they say 40. They haven't like finalized it, but the new guidelines show that people who have had multiple ischemic events, highest risk, you know, diabetes, hypertensive, kidney disease, you know, especially if they are actually still smoking, they need to be 50 or, you know, 55 or below or something, you know, very, very low physiologic LDL. People say, well, isn't it dangerous to have such low LDL? It's not physiologic LDL. When, when a baby is born and it needs the most amount of cholesterol because brain development and neuron development, your brain is almost all cholesterol. And um, when you need the most cholesterol and you're a newborn, your, your LDL is around 30 or 40. And we've been saying that for years in cardiology conferences and medical conferences, but now, now we have absolute proof because we can get people's LDLs that, that low. Previously with statins and the way people eat and lifestyle and genetics, you could only get people's cholesterols or LDLs down to like 60, 70. Very rarely could you get people down to like 10, 5, 7, 15. But now with the addition of Rapatha and some of these newer medications, if you stack that on top of a statin, we can lower your cholesterol by like 80%. So if your LDL is 100, we could get it down to like 15 and 20 if we want to now. And there have been long-term studies of, with like 8.3 years of follow-up that have shown that LDLs as low as 10, 15, 20 are not harmful. They provide even more protection uh, against cardiovascular events and people do really, really well. So we can get people's LDLs down to physiologic levels now and they do fantastic. So without any side effects, without any harm, without any adverse effects, more than, you know, placebo controlled or whatever, we can get people's LDLs down very, very low now. And we have the tools to do it. And there's, we could completely eliminate atherosclerotic heart disease if we wanted to, if, if everyone's willing to, to do it and, and say, let's just get everybody down and the guidelines, you know, drop the normals down even lower because currently the new normal is below hundred. It used to be 130. Previous to that, it used to be 150. So the total cholesterol needs to be under 150. It's no longer 200. And the LDL needs to be under 100. It's no longer 130. It used to be 130. And we know that the lower, the better. Pretty much every chart we've ever done, the lower and lower and lower you get the uh, LDL or total cholesterol, which is 70, 80% LDL. The lower you get that, the better the outcomes. And I've posted those charts and studies on all of my social media um, over and over and over and over again. And you get these people trying to fight the data because they want to eat a certain way or they want to believe like, you know, my triglycerides are low and my HDL is high, so I'm okay. I'm protected. I can eat all the saturated fat and red meat that I want. I'm okay. Or they'll get a calcium score and show that it's zero and think they're fine, which it's not because calcium develops late stage. If you look at the um, artery, and I'll just have a model up here, normal, well, this way, normal uh already i don't know if you can see this clearly it looks like this as cholesterol starts developing it's still uh wide open in there you don't have uh blockage calcium starts forming towards the end you don't want to wait to the very end to finally say oh now i need to be treated my calcium score is starting to go up it's like a smoker i always tell this people like imagine you have a 12 year old kid that's smoking you do a ct scan you don't find lung cancer and you're like oh you're okay keep smoking i mean that's just insane right uh, so you don't want to wait till you have a positive calcium score to finally tell people, oh, you know what? Maybe we should get your LDL down. It's lifelong exposure to LDL, high LDL that causes atherosclerosis. And now we have this concept of, you know, we we talk about smokers in pack years. We say, if you've been smoking one pack a day for 20 years, that's 20 pack years of smoking. You have 20 pack years of exposure. 
LDL cholesterol is the same thing now. What is your age and years of how many how high you've had LDL above a certain number? So if your LDL has been over 110 or 130 for 20 years, your number or risk is this high. And the more, the longer you're exposed to that, the and the higher levels of LDL, the more age and years or pack years you want to call it of cholesterol you have. And we know that the sooner you get that down, the better. If you had to treat cholesterol for only 30 years, you want to get it down from age 20 to 50, not age 50 to 80, because by then you have irreversible plaque. People ask me, well, is there any way to reverse plaque? When plaque is new and soft, and we're talking like months, maybe a year at the most, when it's new and soft and you crush your LDL and get it down, some of that will reverse. Plaque that's more mature, calcified plaque, you have no chance. Once it's calcified, it's not coming out of there. Like that's the end. Um, but plaque is a little more mature. You can get it to regress a little. Um, the, it forms a fibrous cap and it regresses a little. You get like maybe a 0.5 millimeters or like a 1% regression. Like if you have a blocked artery that's like 50% block, it might drop to 47 or 48, but it's not going to go away. The whole idea is to prevent this. I, I, I prefer preventative cardiology than you know curative cardiology. I'd rather not put a stent in your artery. I would rather make your artery so it never needs stents. Um, so like getting your blood pressure down, getting your LDL down. First would be getting your LDL down. The number one mod most modifiable risk factor for having a first heart attack is lipids. And that we can get to zero if we wanted to right now. Um, next is things like smoking, hypertension, lack of eating fruits and vegetables. Um, socioeconomic factors make a huge difference. Um, they're really high up there. Diabetes is a little bit lower on this on the chart. Lack of exercises in there as well. And I posted all those charts multiple times on social media as well. But definitely, we can get your LDL down to almost zero now. And we could completely eliminate atherosclerotic heart disease, which is still the number one killer. Now, the numbers are going down because we have better medications, better stent technology. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a stent before. I'll try to show you. It's inside this tube. You see like a little metal. Um, oh, that's quite long. It's how many centimeters or inches it's, long is it? It depends. Um, they're usually in, in millimeters. This one looks to be about a 30 millimeter stent, but they come in different sizes depending on how big the lesion is. Um, so I always show people this arterial model. Um, if you have a lesion, it's like uh, on this side here, it's like a 10, 15% blockage inside the artery. Eventually it can become like 35, 40. And then eventually on this side, it's like a 50% blockage. If you look at the artery this way, you have very little flow left. We want to prevent this at a younger stage or earlier stage so that it doesn't keep progressing and getting uh, worse. That's kind of the whole uh, idea behind preventative cardiology. Or you could just wait and end up with a stent one day after, after a heart attack. You said it, there, there were like three questions I had that popped in my head since you've been talking. And it sounds like I, I'm all for prevention. Uh, anybody who's been listening to this podcast, of course, it's always the better thing to do, but not so easy. And people like to wait until it's broken till they fix it. And it sounds very similar to podcasts I've done with with Dale Bredesen, who say who says like by the time you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it's you know pretty pretty late, and and it's hard hard to reverse this, if at all. And the same thing for maybe diabetes as well. Your doctor just waits until you get a certain score and then just tries to treat you instead of telling you that you're pre-diabetic or you should probably prevent. So prevention is key here. And, and you've said a couple of things that we think were really important in terms of if it's soft plaque, we can reverse it if it's already hard and mature by very, very little. So that's why we need to do the prevention. The, the other thing you mentioned, um, you said that the taking a blood test and getting your LDL measured 
is similar to the APO, APOB uh, measurement, right? And so what's the whole point of doing uh, an APOB test anyways, if so they're they're very close. LDL, I mean, if you want to just get LDL checked, because we didn't really have APOB, you know, back in the old days. So almost all the studies that have been done have been done on LDL, or you could say non-HDL. Anything that's not an HDL is usually an LDL pretty closely. I mean, there's one few things that are a little different, but it's pretty close. So, but if you don't, if you just have an LDL, just look at your LDL. If it's under 70, you're probably fine. If you have no risk factors, never had a heart attack, never had a stroke, it's totally fine. If you're above 100, you have plaque. There was a study called the PISA study where they actually wanted to answer this exact question. What if we took young people with no known atherosclerosis, they don't have heart disease, they'd never been known to have it, have zero calcium scores, zero everything, but their LD and their LDLs are normal. They use some very fancy imaging techniques to see if there's subclinical atherosclerosis. And by subclinical, meaning like it's not really yet encroaching on the lumen. It's right here, very, very early stage. There's no way to detect this in any of the modern, like current day testing. So they use like uh, MRI, they use 3D ultrasound, they use very, very fancy research type imaging to find out if people have subclinical atherosclerosis which is not yet detectable by stress test, CTAs, you know, the usual stuff that a, that a normal doctor could order that isn't in a research lab. They found that 45% of people with a normal LDL of 110, which was normal back then, had atherosclerosis. And if you go up to 130, it was 58% of people. And if you go up to 150, it was 65, almost 70% of people had subclinical atherosclerosis. The average age in this study was younger. It was 42 instead of the usual like 65, 70. Um, so these were younger people. The median age was 45 or 42 point something, uh, 42.5, that's what it was. And they wanted to see this. And they also found that uh, of all of the people in the study, 65% of them or 63% of them had atherosclerosis in more than one arterial bed. So some had it in their neck, plus their coronaries plus their renals, plus their femoral, plus their abdominal aorta. So it was found in multiple locations in the vast majority of people with a normal cholesterol. So that's the problem is that the normals were just set too high. A lot of people say, well, the vast majority of patients that I see in the cath lab or in the ICU or the coronary care unit having a heart attack uh, have normal LDLs. Well, because the normals are too high, that's why they're having a heart attack. The, nor the LDL does drop when you have a heart attack. So it drops by like 20 to 40%, just depending. But even then with that drop, let's say it drops 20, 30 points, you're still way above what is what is physiologic. No people with, we know like even from the old, old, old studies that an LDL below 57, there's really no heart disease. I mean, it's so minimal. Like they used to have this thing called the 60 uh, guarantee where if it's below 60, so like 57 being the cutoff, if it's below 57, you almost are guaranteed to never have a heart attack or stroke. So that's why the new uh, guidelines state that below 55 should be your goal for somebody who's having multiple, multiple uh, ischemic events. So the, the sooner and the lower you get it and the more, the more potently, the stronger you attack it, the better. We can almost completely eliminate this disease but there's a lot of resistance. People are, if we lower the normals even further, people are going to say, oh, you guys are just big shills for pharma and you're getting paid to say this. And that's obviously not true. Nobody pays anybody to do that. Now, obviously, there's some doctors on the boards of these pharmaceutical companies. Sure, obviously, because you don't want non-clinicians coming up with medications. But the vast majority of doctors that just prescribe a, a generic statin, which is still the most potent medicine 
uh, at least one of the, one of the more potent medications that costs pennies a day, if pennies a month sometimes. Um, they're super generic, and nobody gets paid to actually do that. Not sure where that keeps coming from and why people say that, but it seems like the you know the most intellectually lazy argument is, well, you guys just want to put everybody on statins because you make money off of it. <laughs> nobody makes money off statins. Sure, maybe Pfizer and Merck did when they first invented it, but that's how you drive innovation. You know these. Companies innovate and come up with something that that works, and they that's what, how they get paid for it. The whole system is set up that way. I can't change that, but I I am but I but they're all generic now, and we use them, and they're super cheap, and they're super effective. This episode is sponsored by Oxford Healthspan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because primidine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. So I want to get to the statins, but I put a pin in it there because I, there was another question that I was thinking about in the previous, when you were previously speaking about the, the APOB and the LDL and about regarding the, the idea that doctors get paid and just something popped in my head. I read the book, The Great Cholesterol Myth. I don't remember who wrote that, but I know you're laughing now. It's terrible. Okay. Well, it really, it said in this book uh, that most, I don't know, most people, it was some high number, maybe 40 or 50% of the people who go into the hospital with heart attacks actually have low cholesterol. Is that true or not? It's actually 73%, but low cholesterol based on the older normals. Um, that is, they, they misquoted it. The, the, the authors of that study, so that book has completely been debunked. Five, five of the nine authors had books to sell that were contrarian that said cholesterol is a myth and you don't have to worry about it. Um, the, they did their own meta-analysis. This is how dishonest they were. They ran their own meta-analysis, only used a handful of studies and databases 
Nine of the 19 studies that they used in their meta-analysis didn't even check for mortality, and they're claiming that people over 60 don't have a mortality benefit of being put on a statin or lowering their cholesterol, which is absolutely insane. Um, so they made up their own studies, falsified information. When they were later asked, why didn't you include all of the studies on LDL and cholesterol? They said, oops, sorry, you know, we probably should have done that. But they were just trying to sell a book called The Cholesterol Myth, which is insane. Um, literally, the, the the one study, there's there's two studies done by the Europeans. So you don't even say Big Pharma in America, and it's the USA, whatever. Um, Brian Ferentz study, which I always show that, that chart with all of the studies ever done on LDL. Literally, <clears throat> it's every single study ever done on LDL in the history of humanity. It has 20 million person years of follow-up. In, in, in data, if you took 20 million people and you followed them up for one year, that's 20 million person years of follow-up, or you took 1 million people and followed them for 20 years, that's 20 million person years of follow-up, which is insane. Like We have almost no studies with that many million person years of follow-up. Literally every single way you looked at LDL resulted in worse outcomes, more infarcts, more ischemia, more cardiovascular mortality, more cardiovascular events. So it's not really a question anymore. Um, those people were just trying to sell a contrarian book. And there's other people like that. There's this guy called Malcolm Kendrick, who literally has almost no medical degree whatsoever. He went to medical school and became a general practitioner in the USA. And I don't know what country he's from, but in the USA, if you go to med school and then don't do an internship and don't do a residency, you could become a general practitioner and start practicing after just one year of, of internship, which means you didn't specialize in anything really, which is why you're a general practitioner. You're not even a family practitioner. You're not even an internist. You're not even anything. You're just did a one year, you know, rotation of following some people around that with no specialty could have been anything. But he also has a book called The Cholesterol Con, which is just, he's just conning people. But these people take these studies that like the, the, the cholesterol myth, for example, the studies that they used, most of them did not even check mortality. And they're claiming that, that putting people on medications to lower cholesterol over the age of 60 didn't improve mortality. Well, half the studies you used didn't even check mortality. How are you drawing that conclusion? And when that was pointed out by the British Medical Journal, they just said, oops, we're sorry, but they already probably sold $20 million worth of books. So why do they care? Um, but there's a lot of these people out there who are these scam artists or grifters, whatever you want to call them, that are just trying to be super contrarian and super relevant. They want to they want to make some weird claim to make themselves relevant to sell you a book or sell you something or, or just, just to like, you know, become popular. I don't know what drives people. And I don't want to like you know, get into people's motives and intentions because I don't know them, but we can argue the facts. The facts of these books are generally completely wrong um, and completely falsified. And and when some, once a researcher lies to create their own data or lies and falsifies information or ignores obvious data that's been around forever, you can't really trust anything they say. So in my mind, that you could just throw that book away. It just makes no sense. Uh, or any of these people that just make up data or are caught lying and falling. Now, if they generally just didn't know, that's a different story. But they knew. I mean, it's super easy to, to look that up. Um, the other really good article or, or study you want to look at that's also by the European uh, Atherosclerotic Society is the one that was done by Boren, B-O-R-E-N. Him and Brian Ferentz, Ferentz published it in 2017. It was like this consensus statement on LDL cholesterol and cholesterol in general. Um, Born expanded on that. Um, reading those two articles alone will give you a, and, and they're not written in very sciencey language. Almost anyone who has an education or a college degree should be able to understand both of those articles pretty well. Um, but they're written very, very well. 
their consensus statements. The Brian Ferentz article basically states that based on everything we've known for the last 40, 50, 60 years on cholesterol, that we know that LDL, you know, this cute little thing, this causes atherosclerosis. And every time we take this out of the bloodstream, you cannot have atherosclerosis. So it, it, people argue, no, it's the sugar that you're eating. It's the blood pressure. It's the smoking. It's the diabetes. It's the inflammation. It's the endothelial damage. Damaged arteries are the ones that happen and cholesterol is just there to fix it. That is all not true. That has been proven time and time again. In fact, we've known that since 1996 when they did studies on rabbits. Like, you know, before, we can't do that to humans. You can't take people apart and put them back together again for a study. But now even with human trials and everything that Brian Ferentz and Bourne have done, we know that without question, LDL causes atherosclerosis. It doesn't matter if you have an inflamed artery, doesn't matter if it's damaged, doesn't matter if you have diabetes, smoking, hypertension. Yes, all of that contributes and can make it worse. But without the initiating problem, without high LDL, none of that can actually occur. If you don't have a high particle count, if you don't have a high LDL particle count, crashing your arterial wall and getting into your arterial wall None of the rest matters because you will not have atherosclerosis. So it doesn't matter if you're diabetic or a smoker or have every worst kind of inflammation in the world. None of that makes a difference. If your LDL is low and physiologic, there will be no heart disease. So those are my thoughts on that. Feel free to fire away more questions. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. So then does it matter at all if the cholesterol or the LDL is oxidizing or not? Because I've, I've heard of that as well. Check it out. You find you have high cholesterol, but if it's not oxidizing, you're okay. So the amount of uh, LDL in your bloodstream that's actually oxidized is so minimal. Your immune system eliminates it right away. And for, further, the the oxidized LDL, even when it was high, they've done studies on it. Sure, they've shown some correlation maybe here and there, but it, we've gone back and forth on that. The labs that invented this oxidized LDL just made a lot of money. And when you correct for a total LDL or, or you know, ApoB, if you correct for ApoB or just check an ApoB, you don't even need to know if it's oxidized or not. The amount that's actually oxidized is so minimal. The amount in circulation is so is so minimal. Like, like imagine I tell you you have five pennies in your bank account, and then later I told you, well, now it's ten. You're still super poor. I mean, it, it, you don't have very much in your bank account or your, your, you know, at all. It's, it's so minimal. The amount of oxidized LDL compared to like the thousands of dollars, you know, of this, let's say you have $50,000 worth of this and you're counting pennies. It makes no sense. So literally that's just, that stuff has all been uh, looked at again and again. I've published multiple videos and articles and, and the studies that have re-looked at oxidized LDL. It's a completely worthless and meaningless marker and you don't need to check it or even think about it or even give it any thought uh, whatsoever. So I don't recommend people look at that or think of it or even waste one energy of brain cell power on it. <laughs> You're actually making things so much more simple than 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 other people have been hearing because there it causes even more confusion. Am I safe? Am I not safe? What I'm hearing from you is Look at your cholesterol, your total, and your LDL. Pay attention to LDL, perhaps ApoB. And if that's over 100, now, I think you said there was a new new standardization over 70, then you need to be concerned. Is that correct? Correct. If you have a lot of risk factors and you've already had a heart attack or stroke, then we want it under 55 now. But for the average person who's pretty young and healthy, never had a problem, under 100 is fine. If you want to be really good, Get it under 80 or 70 and you'll be golden. But if you've had events and you have risk factors and you have other things, then you got to really individualize it with your doctor. Go talk to your doctor, 
have them come up with a plan or a number or something that works that makes a lot of sense for you. You don't want to be guessing and playing around with this. Um, I can't give you personalized advice on here because obviously I don't know you or your medical history. I don't mean you, but I mean your listeners. Um, I don't know you guys, but I would love to. You're welcome, like you said, to join my community if you want to. There we give very personalized advice because people share their stories, their risk factors, their background, whatever. But definitely it's very difficult on social media where you don't know people to be giving very, very specific advice. A lot of people tell, you know, will post their LDL and say, hey, my LDL is 15. What should I do? Like, I don't know. I have no idea who you are. Are you a smoker? Have you already had a heart attack? Do you have you had a stroke? Do you live in a nursing home? Like, what is your story? I don't know. But if I knew you and I could give you very personalized advice, like down to an exact number, take Crestor 5 and recheck in a, a week or two, and I can get, I can almost guess your LDL. I mean, you know, that's you know, when you're doing it a long time, you can do that. You know, hopefully that helps. But yeah, just simplify it. Check your LDL and keep it under 100 if you're super healthy. If you want to be even more aggressive about it, under 70 or 80 is, is fine. If you have had issues, please see your doctor and let them, you know, come up with a guideline-based plan to help you. So then that makes me wonder then, because we have to keep in mind, a lot of people listening here are are biohackers or they want to optimize their health. They could be already healthy. And what, what do we want to do is optimize. So if 100 is good, fine. Okay. For us, that's like a, a C. We want to get a B or an A, right? So then you go, oh, what would you say that, that is it worth trying to work harder or do something to get it down to 70, 50, 15, whatever is, is there that much benefit? And then at what cost, like what, what would that take? And that would, is, is it worth it? So yeah, there's a tremendous amount of benefit. Like every chart you've seen on LDL, the lower, the better. I mean, there's tremendous benefit, but that's the issue How, at what cost. So the number one thing you'd have to do is take a statin. And you know, there's statins get a lot of hate on social media. And I have no idea why these are, these are people that are non-physicians, non-cardiologists. They think they know what they're talking about. Literally, it's one of the safest medications ever invented. The, there are side effects, just like there's side effects with drinking too much water. You could die if you drink too much water too fast. You could die if you take too much aspirin. You could die if you take other life-saving medications, blood pressure medications and diabetes medications that save your life. If you take too much of it, will actually kill you. So statins, we track them closely when you take them and we monitor certain things. But the vast majority of people, they're super safe, super effective, and super cheap. That's the best part. Like we could get your cholesterol down. 55 to even 60% with simple, basic, cheap, generic statins. If you want to get it even lower, you'd have to add something like Rapatha, maybe Zetia, Vempidoic Acid. There's all kinds of medication options that we can stack on, but they're not generic and cheap. That's the issue. Zetia is now, at least in the US, um, but Vempidoic Acid is not. It's new. Rapatha is new. Uh, so some of those are going to cost more, but we can get your insurance to cover it most of the time if you see a cardiologist and a cardiologist thinks you need it. If the cost is going to be like the cost that you pay, there is no side effects to having really, really low LDLs other than living longer, not having a stroke. So you're saying if 100 is okay, it's like a C or a B plus, then you want to be like at the A or A plus level, you probably want to be under 60 uh, for sure on both of those numbers. But if you just go by LDL, definitely under 60, you probably will never have a problem. 57-ish, uh, 55 is kind of the cutoff where we don't see atherosclerotic heart disease. So just kind of depends on the person. Okay. So then, so statins, then there are no side effects at all? There are some. The the older statins, the, the original ones like Simvastatin especially, which was called Zocor, Simvastatin had the most side effects, the myalgias or the muscle aches. 
if you looked at the old studies and the old databases, it was like 0.3% of people that actually had myalgias, the, the muscle aches. But in, when you look at the amount of people that actually report the myalgias and complain of them, it's closer to like 3%, maybe 5%, but, but people know that it causes that. So there's like this effect of, well, I know that's a side effect. Any little muscle ache or something is they're going to tell you they have muscle aches. So you get like 20 to 30% of people that say they have muscle aches. So what I usually tell my patients to do it was like, okay, fine, stop the statin for a month. See if the muscle aches go away. If you're still achy and you're still sore and all this, then you just have arthritis and you're getting old and, you know, that's the problem. Or you play too much sports and you're achy and sore afterwards, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and it's not the statin. You can go back on it, uh, you know, after a few weeks and see if it comes back. Um, but that's what we do. If they are having muscle aches, stop the statin for two, two, three weeks. If it goes away, fantastic. Restart it. If it comes right back, then we know it's the statin. We could switch to a different one and try multiple ones first because they're super cheap and generic. If none of those work, then we obviously have to just pick a different uh, medication. And your insurance generally will pay for that if we prove to them that we've tried multiple things that are cheap and it didn't work. And now we have to use something more expensive. Okay. So then I think the the bad rap on statins came from the great cholesterol myth and the great whatever con or <laughs> all these other books, because they would say they would deplete you of your CoQ10 and all these other horrible side effects and, and people get scared and then they go, it's a drug. We always try to do things a little bit more naturally if we can before we actually go into the drug. So I just to respond to that, all of these drugs come from natural substances. Statins come from yeast, like they come from a fungus. Simvastatin, pravastatin, and lovastatin, the first three statins were all from a fungus. They found a fungus, they found this little molecule in there that lowered your cholesterol. It's an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, which prevents cholesterol synthesis and increases your LDL receptors so they can take these out of circulation. And that's how it works. Aspirin is oil of wintergreen. Uh, Coumadin is sweet clover. Digoxin comes from the foxglove plant. Lisinopril, which is the most common blood pressure medication, is viper venom. Um, most things, like people say, well, I just want to take supplements. Well, if the supplement worked, we would turn it into a medication so we could dose it. Imagine if I told you, well, instead of lisinopril, we're going to buy a viper. You're going to keep it in your house, and every morning you're going to have it bite you. Or you're going to go to the grass fields and find sweet clover and eat it every day. No, we need to be able to dose it. So we found the molecules and we can dose it appropriately. Lisinopril is viper venom, the molecule, dosed in five, 2.5, 10, whatever uh, doses so that we can absolutely adjust it. If you go just take a supplement, it's not regulated. You don't know what's actually in it. It doesn't have to have anything in it legally. You could be taking an empty pill of absolutely nothing. And a lot of times they found that they're super contaminated with liver toxins, like the turmeric, there was a study once done on turmeric, and they found that it had so much contaminants, it was causing liver toxicity. People were taking five, six, seven, eight, ten pills a day and destroying their livers because it's completely unregulated and we have no idea what's in it. If it actually worked, we would turn it into a pill. Um, and so that we can control it, it's purified, we know what's in it, it's regulated. There's no point in taking um, supplements that we have no idea what's actually in it or not, where if we put you on rosuvastatin, we know the exact dose. We know it's five milligrams. We know you're getting exactly five milligrams within a 15% error margin. Like they they give them a little bit of leeway, but it's like, you know what's in it. In a supplement, we tell you, oh, go take some red yeast rice, which is where these came from. You don't even know if you actually took red yeast rice. Um, there was a recent study published by the Cleveland Clinic, and I did a video on it recently, looking at the six most common supplements that supposedly lower your cholesterol versus a very low dose statin. It was it was rosuvastatin, five milligrams versus garlic, turmeric, fish oil, 
one other thing and placebo and, and, and a couple other things. I don't remember all of them, but none of them actually lowered your cholesterol more than the placebo. So the placebo lowered it two to 4%, which, because you know, you're getting something, you know, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. And none of the supplements were better than the placebo, but more people dropped out of the supplement group due to side effects than the actual statin group. The statin crushed the cholesterol. It dropped it by 55%. You know, that's what Crestor does. It's the most potent statin, even at a low, the lowest dose. Um, so the, the cholesterol, the medicine, the medicine crushed your LDL, but the supplements barely budged it more, you know, just the same as placebo cinnamon actually increased inflammation of all the supplements cinnamon was in there too it actually increased your crp your high sensitivity c-reactive protein and more people dropped out of the supplement group due to side effects or intolerability like imagine how much garlic you'd have to eat to even make a difference it's gi stomach upset burping nasty smells whatever it is fish oil same thing no effect all of these things had no effect and or bad side effects that people dropped out of where fewer people dropped out of the actual statin group so you know that's my spiel on supplements they, they literally completely unregulated and uncontrolled i actually had a friend in college that bought supplements from china and they just relabeled the bottles and sold them on amazon they tried selling it as an immune booster then a testosterone booster they just kept relabeling the same sugar bottles sugar pills with different things finally one of them hit and they sold all five thousand of them so literally it's a completely unregulated market that makes no sense and has, you have no idea what you're actually putting in your body. Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. The problem is the unregulation and just like so many of the things in terms of bioidentical hormones uh, versus the versus the compound, the compounded ones versus the ones that are prescribed, then you get in the pharmacy. It's the same kind of issue that people have to deal with. And I'm not saying one is right or the other. I think it's just a personal choice, but you have to be aware that just because a lab mixed it together at quote unquote, specifically for you, we don't really know if it's an exact dosage. And that's why some doctors, they prefer just to have the one that you can pick up at the pharmacy that's already made versus the, the one. And there are other doctors that say they have full confidence that this lab is actually creating. That's, that's again, a personal choice. Well, there's third, there's third party testing. If you go to a vitamin shop, for example, and you want to buy vitamin B12, if it's not third party tested, you have no idea what's in it. But if an independent consumer lab tested it and shows that it does actually have vitamin B12 in it or whatever it is, I'm just using an example, then you know it's actually tested by an independent lab. Now, some of these independent labs collude with these supplement companies, so just be careful. Make sure it's a very good one, but that's why I just don't recommend any supplements. Look, I'm a, I'm a longevity biohacker. I want to live to 100 if I can. Two of my grandparents did live to 100, 105, 104 even, but I don't take any supplements. People ask me, what do you take? What's your supplement stack? Literally nothing. I take Crestor to make sure my LDL is like 50, which it is. And I take whey protein because I'm a bodybuilder and you need a little bit more protein. It's hard to get enough protein in a day without getting without going over your calories um, by eating chicken and salmon and whatever else you eat. So I take whey protein and Crestor. That's literally it. And that should be good. I don't think you need to do anything. If there was data that showed anything else worked, trust me, I would be taking it. <laughs> 
what about vitamin D? Is your levels okay with that? Vitamin D I take in the winter because of not enough sun. You know, here in Ohio, it's very gloomy most of the winter and we don't get outside. And even in the summer, we're mostly indoors and air conditioned. So definitely vitamin D is fine. Um, those would probably be the only things. I do have vitamin D. I do take that, but I don't really consider that like a longevity type thing. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it definitely helps. You have vitamin D receptors on almost all of your cells. And we know that uh, people with normal vitamin D levels actually have lower cardiovascular risk and mortality compared to people who don't. So you could argue, I guess, that one I take too. But literally, I don't take any of this other crazy stuff that you could imagine or think of. Yeah, I'm always about testing and assessing instead of guessing. So if you, I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with supplements. I just prefer to test and say, okay, if I'm low, then I test some brand. Uh, and then if it's not working, well, then maybe take another brand or do something else or get in the sun. Yeah, absolutely. If you have a known vitamin deficiency, you need it. I always tell women they definitely need calcium and vitamin D. Uh, most people in the U.S. And, and probably where you live also need vitamin D. Like it's just we just don't get enough sun and and it's dangerous to get too much sun. So that's the other problem. Uh, but definitely women do need calcium uh, to prevent osteoporosis later in life or osteopenia. But those would literally be like the only two things. And like you said, if you're taking an over-the-counter vitamin D and your levels aren't going up, you probably should get on a prescription one or talk to a doctor or somebody who knows how much you actually need to take to get it up to that level. Um, and and but but if you do have a known vitamin deficiency, you should really take it. You know, some of these things cause very weird, rare diseases that we don't have anymore because our food has been fortified with like folate and like all these things. Some of these things are gone uh, away because we we don't have those deficiency anymore because a lot of the foods have been supplemented with it. Yeah, no, I think it's one of the, it'd be interesting to have a whole other discussion on third-party testing. And like you said, some of these companies are paid uh, or they do collaborate with third parties. It's so hard to find out, but, but in the end, you know, if something you're taking is increasing your, you know, vitamin D or calcium levels or whatever it is that you're, you're deficient. And then, then I would say it's okay. Well then keep going. You found something that's working for you. Speaking of supplements, actually, because there were three that were thrown out uh, in to to ask you was the well the red yeast rice you already covered, and then there's the niacin that some people use to lower cholesterol, and the other one is plant sterols, and sometimes they sell these in a little in the in the grocery stores a like a um, Actimel kind of time. I don't know what you have there in the U.S., but it's it's a little drink that you would like a probiotic drink. What do you think of those things in terms of lowering cholesterol? So first, niacin, that's easy. Niacin has been shown to raise your HDL to astronomical levels sometimes. Like your HDL is 30-ish, 35, and suddenly it's 120. But it takes like years to get there. We actually turned it into a prescription. It was called Niaspan. It did raise people's HDLs, but it didn't reduce heart attacks, didn't reduce strokes, didn't reduce mortality, failed every outcome trial that was ever done. And it gave people diabetes. It made your HDL more atherogenic. Um, which is your protective cholesterol, it made it more atherogenic actually, because it can't if your if your HDL goes up, you know, let's say you have more HDL cholesterol and, and that means your HDL is not able to get rid of it. So you made your HDL more dysfunctional, more atherogenic. It wasn't protective. It didn't change any outcomes. Like forget even the mechanism. You know, let's say we're just looking at the outcomes. Did we reduce heart attacks? No. Did we reduce strokes? No. Did we reduce mortality or death rates? No. 
Did we reduce non-fatal heart attacks and strokes? No. Did we reduce anything? No. So there's no point in taking something. So no insurances in the U.S. no longer pay for uh, uh, any kind of nice and nice ban or anything because their outcomes is completely worthless. It's very diabetogenic. It's very liver toxic. The amount that you'd have to take for it to improve your HDL or even lower your LDL is very toxic to your liver. And it causes acanthosis nigricans, which is the darkening of your skin from diabetes. It actually gave people um, diabetes or insulin resistance. Um, and it, there was just really no benefit to it. Plant sterols as a supplement haven't really been that helpful. So the data on those could reduce your cholesterol a little, kind of like fiber. If you eat more fiber, it can somehow block absorption of cholesterol a little or compete. Plant sterols can compete a little with cholesterol because cholesterol is a sterile that ends with the same word, sterile cholesterol. Sterols could compete with cholesterol uptake in the intestine, but it's so minimal. Um, some people are hyperabsorbers, so they might absorb a little more, but still the effect is so minimal. Fiber also has a minimal effect, but we have found that people that add fruits and vegetables to their diet do reduce cardiovascular mortality in in general. So it just kind of depends on what you're trying to go for or what you're using. But definitely, I have a, I have a blog article on my website called "11 Ways to Lower Your Cholesterol Naturally." The number, and I'll highlight them. But each one of those paragraphs, or 11 or 12 ways, I think it's 12 now. Each one of those has PubMed studies to the studies that showed that it worked. Number one would be like reducing saturated fat intake. Of all the things you could do, reducing saturated fat absolutely lowers your cholesterol the most. Saturated fat are fats that are solid at room temperature. Butter, bacon, margarine, lard, tallow, coconut oil, chicken skin, fat on steak, all of that. Basically, almost any animal fat is a saturated fat and absolutely skyrockets your LDL. I mean, we've, we're seeing people with LDLs of three, four, five, six hundred now because they're doing these keto diets with massive amounts of butter and tallow and all this crazy madness. They're they're raising their LDLs to very malignant, you know, high levels. So that's number one, reduce saturated fat. Intake. Number two would be like quit smoking, get your blood pressure under control, exercise more, more fruits and vegetables, more fiber, less stress, sleep more, get better sleep. All of those things contribute. There's like 10 or 12 of them on there now. Um, but they all have the links to the uh, studies in PubMed. If you want to look at the actual studies, you know, reducing this by this much did this. And then there's links to the actual PubMed studies if you want to go uh, and read them. But those are net exercises. Another one, all of those things are ways of lowering cholesterol. The one that has the biggest bang for your buck is reducing saturated fat. Smoking is next. And then the rest of them are kind of like eh, a little bit here and there maybe will helps a little. But if you did all of them, Assuming you're not eating a malignant type of diet, assuming you're a normal person eating a pretty decent, moderate diet without a lot of crazy saturated fat in it, if you're a normal person eating a standard diet, you could probably lower your cholesterol naturally anywhere from 10 to 15% average. Maybe if you're like a hyper responder to some of these things up to maybe 25%, but it's not going to be like a 50%. It's not going to be something huge. So a lot of it is genetically determined and there's not a whole lot we can do now for your genetics, but that would be ways to lower it naturally. I'll put that in the show notes and a link to that article and or to that post. And then would love to have the the article you mentioned before uh, by um, ben, Benner or? Uh, Ference and Boren, I will send you those. That was another great one. And there was one more, but I'll, I'll, it, I'll it come to me. But it's very interesting. So there are certain things. I think we, we understood that prevention is key. You just don't get there in the first place. But if you're already there, statins are not so bad. <laughs> 
does do statins actually deplete you of CoQ10? Do you need to take that? No, if you take not at all. They've they've done those studies. If if that were true, we would be putting everybody on combination pills. It would be CoQ10 plus statin. It just makes no sense. I've published videos on those as well. CoQ10 does not actually help with the myalgias. It doesn't really get depleted. People just seem like they just want to grasp onto something. It's called ubiquinol. Make sure your CoQ10 has ubiquinol in it. Like it's just people trying to sell a dream or a fantasy that you know. Statins are so horrible. You need this extra weird supplement to take. If that were true, we would put them together and make a combination pill. And CoQ10 is so cheap and generic. Why wouldn't a pharmacy say, hey, here's the next billion dollar you know, drug. Our statin or our medication causes no muscle aches because it has CoQ10 because the data is not there. Everybody would laugh at them. So many times, farm reps or pharmaceutical companies would invest in this combo pill and they come to you and they say, hey, look, we're giving people acid reflux medicine plus aspirin. You know, and, and then if the data is not there, no one's going to prescribe it. Or if it costs $3,000 a month, why wouldn't I just prescribe them aspirin and acid medicine separately? So if the data was there, we would be giving it to everyone. Now there is data to support vitamin D levels should be normalized. And if you're on a statin and your vitamin D level is low, you may have more myalgias than other people. So there have been those studies, and I've posted those videos as well. So if, you're, if you get your vitamin D levels up to a normal level, you're less likely to have myalgias uh, from statins. So that is actually true. The CoQ10 thing is just hocus pocus. I'm sorry, but it just it's, there's no data to support it. Otherwise, we would be giving everybody it. I mean, it just makes no sense. Like, And then people say, well, how come you don't support supplements? I do. They're, they're prescription pills now. Yeast is statins. Red, you know, red yeast rice, that's how we discovered lovastatin. Viper venom is lisinopril. Sweet clover is coumadin. Digoxin came from the foxglove plant. And there's so many other examples. Aspirin comes from the bark of a willow tree. It's oil of wintergreen. That's why Ben Gay smells like wintergreen, um, the cream that you put on your muscles when you're achy. But all of the, all of these things, if they worked, we would turn it into something we can actually prescribe you and dose properly. And we know that it contains what it says it contains. That's pretty clear on the statins. I'm really glad you cleared a lot of that confusion and and. The other thought was, I'm sure some people are thinking this as well. Okay, well, I'm going to clean up my diet, stop the saturated fats, quit smoking or start exercising and do all these things, it, perhaps take red yeast rice. If there's cholesterol or there's their LDL, which they think is what we need to really pay attention to, is down below 100, should they still go on the statin or is that just kind of optional? It depends. If you have no risk factors and you're under 100, we generally don't say you should take anything. But the red yeast rice in the US is no longer allowed to contain lovastatin. Previously, because it's because lovastatin is a regulated substance now, you cannot include it in red yeast rice. So all the red yeast rice in the US, at least, and I don't know about other countries, but in the US, it's not allowed to, to contain controlled substances. You cannot, like, it's like somebody buys testosterone booster. It cannot contain testosterone. Like it's an over-the-counter supplement. Testosterone is a highly controlled substance that's a prescription. You need a prescription for that. In the US, you cannot contain that. So same thing with red yeast rice. It's not allowed to contain the actual ingredient that actually worked. So no red yeast rice in the US is allowed to contain lovastatin. You can actually just take lovastatin, which you actually know it contains lovastatin. It's a weaker statin. It was one of the first ones discovered, but it works. It does lower your cholesterol. And now we have more potent ones but you really shouldn't be taking anything. If your LDL is under 100 and you're pretty normal and healthy, you're probably going to be fine. If you really want to optimize your health and be you know, one of these like longevity biohacker people, you probably want it uh, much lower. But it's hard to individualize that recommendation without actually knowing the person. So you have to go talk to your doctor. Why did lovastatin be removed out of red yeast rice in the US? Because it's illegal. It's a prescription medication. It's a substance that you need a prescription for. 
but originally it was it was in the plant and then I don't understand. Previously before it was discovered that that it, before it became a prescription before it be, you know they became a prescription medication people didn't know they would try all different kinds of things and then eventually we realized that it's lovastatin and that's the molecule that's actually working uh from red yeast rice and it became a prescription medication so we can control it rather than people just taking yeast and fungus because you actually could kill yourself taking too much yeast and fungus imagine eating like random mushrooms and you know hoping one of them isn't poisonous but that's why like that that would be like me going to a vitamin store and saying i want testosterone like you it can't contain testosterone or you know because it's illegal it's a it's a prescription medication otherwise companies would be making billions and billions of dollars selling testosterone so anytime something is FDA regulated and approved, it has to be a prescription. You need a prescription to buy it. You can't just go buy it over the counter. Now, I know in some other countries, you can get any medicine over the counter. You just go to the pharmacy and say, I want lisinopril, and they just give it to you. Um, but in the US, at least, it's very highly controlled. Interesting. So that was, so lovastatin was a, an ingredient, in a compound in the red yeast rice. And I would think they would just make red yeast rice completely illegal to sell. Like, instead of it's go through the trouble of removing it and you know then selling it, most of the pills that say red yeast rice on it now, I guarantee you, doesn't contain any red yeast rice at all. I mean, I'm sure somebody's tested it, but it probably contains nothing. Most of these, they actually, there was a study about 10 years ago where they went to Walgreens, Walmart, Vitamin Shop, GNC, all these places sell supplements and bought a ton of them and then tested them. 95% of them did not contain what they said they contained. So there's a study and statistics on this. It, like they don't contain what they say. So you have to be really careful, yeah. I always tell my patients, you're paying for expensive urine. You have to just pee out. You have to pee out and detox whatever it is you put in your body. And there's no point in doing that when you have no idea what's in it. I like supplements. I'm a fan, but I, I definitely believe you need to find out where your sourcing is from. And and there's stuff I've seen and it works and it's great, but it's not. It's the percentage of stuff that's out there that is actually effective and has what's in it is very small. So I really recommend people to do their, their homework dig into a company or look at the third-party tester and try to find out as much as you possibly can if that supplement has actually what it is that it says in it. Don't just go and free, freely buy on Amazon and who knows what you're getting. People go, okay, I got I got to get my LDL down. Okay, I've got to work on this how, other way. But there was that question in the beginning, I'm sure when people get told, oh, you have high cholesterol, you go, well, do I really need to focus on a number when I just need to figure out if I'm going to have a heart attack or not. That's like the most important thing. And you've made this this uh, very clear that your LDL, the higher it is, the, the it is more risk for a heart attack. But is there a way? There's that. There was the whole calcium score thing that you said is doesn't work, doesn't show. Just because you have zero doesn't mean you don't have uh, um, uh, calcium buildup in the in the arteries. Is there anything else that we can find to see that where we're at? And and I mentioned to you just before there was a machine or a thing called Clearly, C-L-E-E-R-L-Y. And that's a new thing that we can, it's a way to, it's a way to determine how, what risk you have of a heart attack and it's non-invasive. It looks at your heart assessment to see if there is plaque buildup. Now, have you heard of this? And if there are any other ways we can test to actually see the buildup in the, in the arteries? It tests a lot of things, probably some lab tests. I looked at it and it's just basically a coronary, a coronary CT angiogram, they call it, a CAT scan angiogram, where they inject dye. Let me just show you on the heart model. Go to the YouTube video, guys. <laughs> they inject dye into your into your uh, veins and then these, these arteries um, light up and you can tell if there's blockages. But again, 
unless the blockage so so it injects dye into here and unless there's an actual blockage that is blocking the blood flow you can't see it so these types of blockages where it's not impeding the blood flow are not seen these early and these moderate blockages there's still flow going through here it's not until the very end where it gets plugged up and i can't pass my finger through here that's when it gets bad enough that it actually show up on a ct angiogram or any of these advanced testing so that's why i tell people listen i am a preventative cardiologist i want to prevent cardiology i don't want you to ever see me that's why i've been putting videos on youtube since 2010 and i have some older ones even before it was called youtube i turned them off because the science has changed and, and it's not accurate and i don't really care for the views i just want to be accurate but you you can eliminate this before it even happens there's no reason to wait until a CT angiogram is positive, a calcium score is positive, a stress test is positive, an echocardiogram is positive, an EKG is positive. You don't want to wait till you have actual end stage or later stage cardiovascular disease when you can actually make this go away before it even happens. So the number one thing I just tell people, just check your LDL. If we know your LDL cholesterol, we know with almost absolute certainty whether you're going to have a heart attack or stroke, depending on the number and your risk factors and your family genetics, all of that. We take all of it into consideration, whether you're a smoker or not, what other risk factors do you have? Does this run in your family? How high is the number? It, and it's lifelong exposure to high LDL. So we want that lifelong exposure to be as low as possible. It's like smoking. If you've smoked five pack years, if you have five pack years of history of smoking, where you smoked one pack a day for five years, it's not as bad as 20 or 30. So we know an LDL of like, 50, 60, 70 is not as bad as 150, 60, and 70. So we want to try to eliminate risk as much as possible. And you don't need this fancy advanced imaging. Now, if you really, if you're older and you've already had disease, yeah, those things are all going to be positive. I don't know how much more value it adds. If you've already had a heart attack or a stroke, your LDL needs to be below 55 regardless. So it doesn't, you don't need to be checking all these things. We already know we have the answer. Um, now, don't get me wrong. If you're having chest pain and you're, we're not sure if it's your heart or not, we could do a stress test, which is a functional test, which is not like any of these tests. It's different, but we might be getting too detailed. But either way, if we know your LDL, we know your risk. So why not do a simple, quick, easy blood test that probably everybody already has in their lipid labs that they had every year anyways? Correct me if I'm wrong. If you are over 130, I think you said you can be pretty sure you got some uh, buildup, plaque buildup. but wouldn't you say, based on those, this model that you gave me, that a woman in going through menopause in her 40s and 50s, could you assume that, yes, you, you probably do have plaque? It's, more, it's very likely you do have plaque buildup. So look, everybody has plaque buildup, even 10, 10 20, 20-year-olds. 20 They've done autopsies on people that have come back from war that are in their teens and 20s. They all had plaque in their coronary arteries. Now, it's not a lot, but it's there. Um, they've done autopsies on fetuses. A, a baby dies from a miscarriage or something happens. If the mom's cholesterol was high, they had fatty streaks in their aorta. Now, the aorta is this large uh, blood vessel leaving the heart. Because they have tiny little hearts, it's very difficult to get into their tiny little arteries. But even the aorta had fatty streaks or plaque. You know, that's, that's the early stages of plaque if the mom had high cholesterol. So I usually tell people, listen, you have plaque. I don't care who you are or what you are, unless you have one of these genetic mutations where your LDL is like 10 or 15, which there are. There are people who have something called the PCSK9 loss of function gene mutation, where they have no PCSK9 function, which is why we created PCSK9 medications like Rapatha. It actually knocks out um, your LDL and it brings it can bring it down to like 10 or 15 or 20, like super, super low levels. Those people have the highest chance of living longer 
and have the most people that live to over 100. So we know like what genetics happens at work, but unless you're one of these people with these genetic mutations, you have plaque. It's just a matter of how much and how quickly and how soon things will happen to you. All of these lifestyle things can either accelerate or decelerate that. Like, like Peter Atia has this example, you're in a car and you're heading towards a cliff. You will fall off that cliff at some point. It's a matter of, are you slowing down that process or are you running and racing towards it faster? So your LDL is there. You could either bring it way, way down and slow this all down and hopefully never have a problem, or you could speed it up by eating horribly and smoking and drinking and all that stuff and just speed it up and make it worse. So you do have plaque. It's just a matter of how much. And there's no way to know. You couldn't say, oh, if you have LDL of 150 or some high number that you have 50% already blockage of your arteries. So there's no way we could find out exactly. There's no way to know that for certain because there's a lot of genetic variances. Like I might have an LDL of 130 and have 5-10% lesions. Somebody could be the same, different genetics, you know, same LDL, but have 30 or 40% lesions. It just kind of depends. So we don't really, we have no real good way of predicting that just based on L, just based on LDL at least. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think if there's a test that comes out, you have to let us know, uh, some kind of scan or something where we could actually see how much plaque buildup you have, like, where are you on the spectrum? But it doesn't add value. You could do a cardiac MR or some of these other fancier testings that they do in these research studies. You could do that and see subclinical plaque that's still in your arterial wall and not encroaching on the lumen. You could, but if they're super expensive, they're only for research, but it doesn't add any more value. So we know from the PISA trial that young people with normal LDLs do have plaque. I mean, that's that's not a question. The question is, how much value does that add to you? What are you going to do? Are you going to change anything? You should already want your LDL pretty low anyways, whether you did the scans or not. And I mean, the the the, the likelihood ratios and hazard ratios are so high that we know you're going to have something. Um, there's almost no point in waiting for it to get worse or, you know, checking to find out you have it. It's just a matter of how much and how quickly is it going to happen to you. The lower you get your LDL, we know you've maximized your genetic potential. So let's say your genetic potential is here and you're going to have an event by age 80 at an LDL of 110. But if we get your LDL down to like 50 or 60, it might not happen until age 90 or 100. I don't know. But you can maximize your genetic potential regardless by lowering your LDL. We just don't know what that is till you get to that age. And the solution for that would be your 10 recommendations naturally plus a statin. It depends on the person. Some people's LDLs are very low uh, if they do these things. If they have a really poor diet and you have really good genetics and you get rid of the poor diet, your genetics are great. You end up with an LDL of like 50. You don't need to do anything. Yeah. No, I'm saying if somebody already has high LDL, that's what, that's the solution. Yeah. If you have, yeah, let's say you have high LDL and it was due to a bad diet and your genetics are so good that if you get rid of the bad diet, your LDL drops to 50, then you're fine. You don't need anything else. So it just depends. It's very rare that that's the case. It's very rare that somebody could change their diet and do all those 10 or 12 things and magically cut their LDL in half, it's very hard. You'd have to have impeccable genetics and a horrific you know, lifestyle. If you have both of those extremes where you have amazing genetics and a horrific lifestyle choices, you could probably get it down pretty low. But the vast majority of people are not in those extremes. They have normal genetics and very normal, maybe a little bit bad lifestyle choices. So they're probably not going to get it down that low, but they could certainly improve it. And maybe most would probably need a statin. And pro probably even more so 
for people with familiar uh, familial hyperlipidemia. Is that true? Yeah, that's a genetic disorder where your LDL is over 190. Those people absolutely need to be on something, maybe two things. Just there's no, it's very difficult to get it down enough. Let's put it that way. I mean, you can take a stat and you'll get it down to maybe 110, 100, but you probably need more to get it down to 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. Yeah, and no matter what those people do in terms of diet and lifestyle, there it's it's really really tough. So, well, it's a genetic. It's very difficult. There's almost no way to change your genes yet. Um, I want to move on to another topic of weight, but before we do, I know that Jenny's here, and and if you have any questions based on the cholesterol, feel free to unmute or type in the comments and uh, say anything you like, because I know you have to go. Hi, um, thank you so much. I just actually back to dietary cholesterol, I was really surprised that you said it, you know, actually doesn't have a big impact. You know, I've been thinking, oh, I mustn't eat eggs because they're so high in cholesterol. Should I have an egg today? So, so what you're saying is really, I could eat, you know, is it do eggs because some say they're high in cholesterol, others say they aren't. That's just a basic question, really. Um, one, one I had that came to mind. So you you can eat eggs. Um, there the studies on 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 dietary cholesterol are are pretty clear. It's very difficult to eat enough dietary cholesterol to actually affect your circulating cholesterol. For the vast majority of people, if you eat within the normal range of dietary cholesterol, two hundred to three four hundred milligrams a day, which is like two or three eggs a day at the most, you're fine. If you're eating extremes of intake, like a thousand milligrams a day of cholesterol then yeah, absolutely, it can affect your circulating cholesterol. Then that would be like somebody eating 15 eggs a day, something like that, um, which I don't think anybody does. But there are some people that are hyperabsorbers of cholesterol, and there's tests to do that, but we do have a medicine that blocks absorption in your guts and in your intestines. So there are some people that are more that absorb cholesterol more, but they're but they're absorbing their own cholesterol more. Your your liver secretes cholesterol into bile acid, it gets reabsorbed into your intestines. And then your intestines do reabsorb that. That's 90% of the cholesterol that's in your intestines is the one that your liver put there. So this medication called ezetimibe or zetia actually blocks that. So one way to test if you're a hyperabsorber is to take zetia for you know a month or so, recheck your numbers and see if it made like a whopping difference. Because zetia normally drops your LDL cholesterol by 10 to 15%, somewhere in that range. And if yours gets cut in half, then you just must have been a hyperabsorber. Um, so that's one way to check it. But definitely, you can eat an egg or two a day, three or four, even it may be, you know, it just kind of depends on the person. What you could test yourself, you could switch your diet, check, start eating whatever amount of eggs you want to eat a day, and then recheck your labs uh, a month later, and then see what changed. Um, if the, if it skyrocketed, then you must be like a hyper absorber, and you probably shouldn't do that or take Zetia. I mean, either, either option. Thank you very much for that information. I really appreciate it. <laughs> But the the eggs, do they not have saturated fat? They do, but it's not a lot. But definitely they do. That's another way that they raise cholesterol. So it would be the cholesterol plus the saturated. The yolks have the saturated fat. The protein is mostly in the whites. So a lot of these bodybuilders that want more protein will do the just the egg whites because it's also very low calories for the amount of protein that you get. It's pure protein. So you could have like five egg whites and end up with no, almost no calories, but end up with like, a you know, 30, 40 grams of protein, depending on how much you put in there. So that's one kind of hack that you could use too, if you're allergic to milk, milk products and whey protein. The the shrimp actually is another example, I think very high in cholesterol, but no saturated fat. 
Shrimp is also fantastic for the amount of protein to calorie ratio. Like you could eat 10 or eight, eight to 10 large shrimp and end up with barely 80 calories, but you get a lot of protein out of it. So shrimp is definitely a hack you could use if you're trying to increase your protein intake. And without the saturated fat as well, which is kind of interesting too. Great. Oh, I'm so glad we've answered so many of these questions. And that was a really great question, Jenny. Thank you so much. One other question, actually, Reed, I want to go into the the diet part and your 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 diet guru and and you've got all these books and programs. There was one question I had and it just completely flew by me, but it'll come, it'll come back. Anyways, so you you got a lot of information, anyways, on weight loss and and losing uh body fat is is probably behalf of your if you have too much fat on your body is probably not a good thing. Um, I'm wondering also if this has something to do, because I just remembered my question, why do women going through menopause, and it seems to me, I don't know, this is not based on studies, so many women have this huge jump in their cholesterol levels. Suddenly they had no cholesterol problems before, and then they hit in their mid-40s when they're in that perimenopause phase, and then it goes high. Do you know what's going on there? Yeah, so a lot of it is hormonal. We know that estrogen and testosterone and thyroid and all these hormones we have to correct those first before we correct uh, your lipid panel. Now, if you are not on like hormone replacement therapy, or doctors think it's a good idea, or they think it's going to affect your cardiovascular health or whatnot, um, then we just treat down your LDL regardless. Um, men that are on testosterone, sometimes it can mess up your, your lipid panel. People with thyroid disease, same thing. If your thyroid is really hypoactive or not producing enough, your cholesterol goes through the roof. We have to correct that first. Estrogen has a bit of a protective effect on women. So women usually get heart disease 10 years later. So usually men have more heart disease uh, up until the age about 50, 55. And then women have don't because they have estrogen. So it's a little bit protective. But once they go through menopause about 10 or 15 years later, then they catch up and they start having heart disease uh, at the same rates that men do. So it kind of depends. The studies on hormone replacement therapy in the past have been somewhat bad. We've, we, we've given people, people, women estrogen, and it made things worse, and the studies have gone back and forth. So now it's very personalized, depending on the person. They say that hormone replacement therapy with uh, progesterone right around perimenopause for the least amount of time as possible seems to be protective. But the longer you go on and stay on these things, the data is a little bit, you know, uh, it, it varies. So I don't know that we have like a final answer on that because the studies have gone back and forth, but definitely hormones affect that. And, 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 and adipose tissue, for example, if you put on weight, which some people do during menopause, um, adipose tissue, which is fat tissue, fat is very pro-inflammatory. That contributes as well. And when lipids, actually, the, the main goal of lipids is to traffic fat. Like when you eat fat or you eat to consume too many calories, it's lipoproteins that go around trafficking it. They take the extra energy. They, their job is to transport triglycerides, which is fat or energy, to your muscles, organs, tissues that need it, not cholesterol. Cholesterol is the cholesterol, the yellow part in there is just to hold it open. The the green or the this part, especially one that has more triglycerides in it, these are triglycerides, these are energy. It's fat, fatty acid chains or fatty acids that go to muscles and cells to provide energy. So it's more of a lipid trafficking or a fat trafficking system more than anything. But too much of it obviously can be a, a bad thing because if they have too much, you have too much of these lipoproteins, too much of them get into your arterial wall, they drop off cholesterol and they get inflamed and they, they start this whole immune process inside the arterial wall. And then the cholesterol crystallizes and can cause damage and harm 
uh, to your arteries. I forgot the original question, but yeah, perimenopause definitely because of the hormonal changes can raise your LDL and cholesterols. And even it happens in men when their testosterone starts going down over time, it's the same thing. Women do have testosterone. It's not as much, but definitely their testosterone also starts to decline with time and around menopause and postmenopause. So I think the studies on women and hormone replacement therapy and all the sort of protective benefits are still ongoing because there was very little in studies done on women, period, let alone women going through menopause. So I think there is a lot to catch up on. I think what we do know is that hormone replacement therapy is protective for osteoporosis, uh, hands down. Now I'm questioning, but you do hear uh, a lot of doctors and, and influencers or even reading books it's protective for the heart, it's protective for the brain, it's protective for a lot of things. I'm just not sure if the studies are actually proving it, but do we need to wait for a study anyways? I, I'm, I'm not really sure, but the question is, because you are the cardiologist, do you know of any, do you, do you believe that or know of any studies that are showing that it is cardioprotective to go on hormone? And hormone replacement therapy just means, it could be, it's a broad, it's a broad term. Yeah, it could be anything. Um, but generally speaking, we know that women who have been healthier and have low LDLs and low everything to start with are going to be protected pretty much regardless. So that's the one thing like we always say, if you can, if you correct for LDL or correct for ApoB, like all these studies, the Women's Health Initiative and all these studies that looked at estrogen replacement versus progesterone versus low dose this or none of that or back and forth. If you looked at the ones who had the lowest LDLs, they're not going to have heart disease. I mean, regardless of anything else, if your LDL is low, you're not going to have any of this. So if we had to summarize it, uh, without going too detailed into all the different studies, because the studies have gone back and forth. Some of them didn't control for LDL. Some of them never checked it. Some did. If we if we control for LDL on a population basis, you know, like I keep citing the Ferenc article with 20 million person years of follow-up, we know that regardless if you were a woman pre-menopausal, post-menopausal, they were all included in there. And they actually have the breakdowns of how many people, you know, were women and at what ages and what, you know, not ages. And we know the breakdowns, you know, I, I can pull that up or send you the link to that. But definitely, if you don't have LDL, you don't have heart disease. So regardless of any of this other stuff, that's why sometimes it's hard to do these kinds of studies or longitudinal studies, because if you're not actually checking everything and not correcting for some of these things, you're not going to have a very clear answer. There's going to be a lot of covariants and co-founders that muddy the waters. Like if we're just checking progesterone and estrogen levels and, and then seeing if you have a heart attack if we don't know what your ldl was maybe the ones that had had it had a high uh, hdl or ldl because maybe the estrogen made that higher you know like we don't know but they have to correct and check all these things to get like a final answer but the one final answer that we do know is that if your ldl is down here no matter what we do with anything else even if you're a smoker even if you're a diabetic even if you do everything horrible nothing will happen if you have no ldl so I think that's an easy way of summarizing that. Yeah, it all comes down to the LDL. And like you mentioned before, a lot of women going through menopause have thyroid issues suddenly. And uh, I think in, uh, before people would but correct the cholesterol because the cholesterol would go through the roof, they correct it through thyroid medication, which again is something you talk to your own doctor about as well. So women are very complex beings. And so we need to, to consider for that. Well, there, there's a lot of data on also like when you had your first child, did you breastfeed or not? How long did you breastfeed for? How long before your second child? Almost all of those variables do affect your heart disease risk. But like I said, once you correct for LDL, almost none of those things have that much more influence compared to the amount of influence that LDL has. 
So there are all kinds of studies. If you want to dig really deep into that, maybe we can do that a different day. But I don't know that it matters that much because we know if you have an LDL that's low, I don't care how many times you've been pregnant, how long you breastfed or didn't breastfeed, how long you waited before your second child or pregnancy or how long you did this. We know that if you have low LDL, almost nothing else really matters. This is the key takeaway, everybody. Look at your LDL and fix it. We've gone like an hour and a half now almost. And I have, I think we may need to make this to two two different, you have the option to do two different podcasts, you know, one on, on the weight loss and the- But what other, yeah, stuff. maybe we'll do the weight loss and nutrition later. Let's do another it's, one, yeah. It's a completely different topic almost. Yeah, I wanted to share more, yeah. That topic is my most requested topic, actually. When, when, when people ask me to speak at a medical conference or whatever, that's literally the most requested topic. Even though I'm a cardiologist and I do lipids and we can talk cardiology for 30 hours straight, they actually want the weight loss lecture because I have published multiple tons of books on it since the early 2000s. And the research that has exploded in that field in the last five to 10 years on weight loss and fitness and research on it and different kinds of diets and how they affect you or don't affect you, we could talk 30 hours on just that, but I don't think you want to keep this podcast going for another eight hours. I can't either. <laughs> let's do, let's book you in for one on weight loss, because I think the a message here too, is con when you control your cholesterol too, being, a, having a little bit too much uh, weight is also not, not very preventative. So we need to, to focus on that. One last question I do, it did come occur to me because when I, was doing, I'm, I have a master's in gerontology. We studied the mind-body connection and I was really surprised what I heard. And I want to confirm this with you. Uh, we were studying stress and the impact of stress on atherosclerotic buildup, you know, plaque buildup. So if somebody has a great diet, great exercise, they're, they're in a healthy weight, but yet they have a lot of stress, does that still contribute to plaque buildup? And if so, by how much? Um, stress definitely contributes to atherosclerosis. And I have the studies on that same article that I'm going to send you, the 11 ways to lower your cholesterol naturally. One of them is stress, and it has the PubMed links to those studies. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. But lack of sleep, extra stress, not enough exercise, not enough fruits or vegetables. They've actually found that adding fruits and vegetables to a diet that's high in saturated fat does reduce uh, your risk. So even if you don't change the amount of saturated fat you eat, but you just add fruits to it, it does actually reduce your risk. Now, it's not a whopping amount. It's not more than if you reduce the saturated fat, but still there is something about fruits, the antioxidant effect, effects or whatever it is that does offset some of that bad genetics, bad LDL from eating too much saturated fat. But yeah, absolutely. Reducing stress does lower your risk of atherosclerosis. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. I could pull up my blog, but I mean, you could uh, probably do that as well later. So yeah, you said it reduces, but can it actually contribute to having it increase? If it, Imagine all the other factors there. Increase? Yeah, it definitely does. The higher the stress level, the, it definitely increases your atherosclerotic risk. Let me find, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. It, it, so chronic stress increases LDL cholesterol levels, and obviously that causes atherosclerosis. And then there's lots of ways to reduce it. And there's three PubMed studies that go with that. So you can actually read the research on why that works and how it works and you know the exact numbers of how much reduction there is and how much improvement there is. Oh, send it to me because you could be running yeah the treadmill all day long and eating broccoli, but if you're not managing your stress, you're still... Pounding your body by exercise is inflammatory and is stress-inducing, but it's, it's brief. So you do get that higher inflammation and higher stress while you're doing it, 
but it reduces your overall stress and cortisol levels and our CRP and all that overall. Uh, so stress is good for you. Inflammation is good for you. It's healing and it's it's a way of stressing your body, but you don't want to like always be doing that. So these people that go on these, like for example, extreme marathoners, people who run 20, 30 miles a week uh, actually have more heart disease. They have more atherosclerosis. They have more sudden cardiac death. They have more cardiac arrhythmias. They have higher calcium scores actually. Um, so there is a point of where it becomes bad for you. Too much of a good thing eventually can be a bad thing. Um, so there is that as well that you have to be careful with. Oh yes, the chronic cardio. Yes, definitely. We we get it. We get that's that'll be in our conversation about um, weight management. I I know you have to go. I really really appreciate your time, and you've just cleared up so much confusion. I hope everyone has got the memo, manage the LDL, watch the saturated fat, <laughs> and uh, talk to your doctor about all the all the rest. Do you want to mention your community before we we go? Because I thought that was very intriguing. I'm not sure what that is. Um, if you just go to dralo.net, dralo.net slash links, all my links are in there. Um, there's the community, there's all the books, there's all the cookbooks. I have a, I have an actual cookbook. I think you would actually like this. If you shoot me an address, I'll send one to you, but it's a weight loss cookbook. It's heart healthy and it, and it's organized by calories needed to lose weight. So let's say you do your calculations in the first chapter and you need to eat 1800 calories to lose weight. You go to that chapter, make breakfast, lunch, and dinner and dessert. You'll lose weight while getting enough protein that you don't lose muscle. The biggest problem is sarcopenia, and this might be for the for the next podcast, but the biggest problem is we lose muscle when we diet down and are in a calorie deficit, and you don't want to do that because muscle is protective. It increases your metabolism. You live longer the more muscle you have, all of that. So this book is heart healthy, no saturated fat, no salt, and it's organized in a way to help you actually lose weight and achieve your goals, and it's super flavorful and tasty because i hate bland food i grew up with my mom and i cooked a lot and i, I was like a hobby chef and i love cooking um, but i like it to taste like something <laughs> most of our diets are very bland um, but i add like tons and tons of flavor and and, and spices and i think you'll love it but yeah just go to dralonet slash links and you should be able to find everything there excellent and i want to be a part of this community because if you're able to help people in that, I think it's a wonderful space. Um, I'll, I'll go check it out myself. And how do you get a part of that community? Just go to the links, click on join my community. You can read about it, watch a video about it, and then you can click on a way to subscribe or join. So it's super easy. Okay, cool. It's uh, very personalized to you. So we get to know you really well. You can post your cholesterol numbers in there. Um, you can ask questions. There's an exercise. There's different forums and different circles for different topics. There's a cholesterol or lipids. There's exercise and fitness, weight loss, nutrition, general everyday off topic stuff. I don't know. There's there's a ton of categories. I see. I'll see if I can pull up some of the rest. But but it's all basically how to live healthy. I'm so excited. Actually, I wish I I, I checked that out before interviewing you. But you gave a code. Yeah, ALO twenty for fifty percent off the community. ALO25 for 25% off anything else that is on your website, which we need to cover a lot more with you next time. So your web, your, your, your website, you do have a website as well. Uh, yeah, Dr. Allo.net. Oh, it's, it's just, just Dr. Allo.net. D-R-A-L-O.net. Okay. There should okay. be everything on there. If you go to the links, DrAllo.net slash links, you should find everything. Great. And I'll have links. You got you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, Pinterest, even. You are everywhere. 
I will have links to all of that. It's usually you actually there. don't even need to. If you just put links in there, uh, all of the links to all my socials are under there. If you just go to dralla.net slash links, everything is in there directly to those socials. Oh, you've just made my life so much easier. Thank you so much. <laughs> and the article on 11 ways to lower your cholesterol naturally is linked up in there too, because that, that's the most popular article. Perfect. So before I let you go, do you have any last words for a woman going through menopause? I would just say stay active. Don't just sit around, eat a healthy Mediterranean style diet and get your LDL to as low as you want or can tolerate. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yep. Take care. Nice meeting you guys. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one -on -one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.